You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Back in the so-called golden age of Hollywood, directors were, for the most part, craftsmen. Though there were some who specialized in a particular genre, like Hitchcock with thrillers, John Ford with westerns, and George Cukor with, well, women's pictures, most were jacks of all trades. A filmmaker could make a drama, a war movie, a horror film, and a comedy all in the same year. They wore many hats. Then, as now, very few directors had their own signature style. It was the rare filmmaker whose vision was so remarkably personal that you'd recognize it on the screen in minutes. From Georges Méliès to Hitchcock to Spielberg to Guillermo del Toro, we embrace the unique vision. Walter Hill is one of those filmmakers. His muscular, lean, gritty, and often violent storytelling is iconic, original, and immediately identifiable. And like the movie makers of the Golden Age, his works have crossed many genres, though he is probably best known for his westerns and action films. A true tour. He is the complete filmmaker, writer, director, and producer. Walter Hill has truly done it all and has had the kind of career that any director would want. Critical success, big box office, longevity, and a long and varied list of movies like no other. He's best known for reintroducing the Western with films like his directorial debut, Hard Times, and later with Wild Bill and Geronimo, and then again on television with Deadwood and Broken Trail. His action films, The Warriors, Dead Heat, and Trespass, are ballets with bullets. He's even been successful with comedy. 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy was one of his biggest box office hits. But on Postmortem, our focus is primarily on horror. You don't immediately think of horror when you think of Walter Hill, but in fact, his impact on the genre is huge and important. First, as writer and producer on Alien, and as one of the producers and directors on the Tales from the Crypt TV series. He is a very important creator in our world of dark fantasy. And he has a new movie out. The assignment is pulpy noir, and I would say borderline horror. It's a very different movie from a very different movie maker, and we're going to start our discussion with that. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. The assignment was originally a script that you had found some 20 years or so ago, right? Longer. Uh, Dennis wrote his story and script, I think, in 1977. I read it then... uh, it came to me through the agency, uh, and I was fascinated by it. But I was—I I didn't do anything. Uh, I was quite busy doing some other things, and uh, I never quite forgot it, though. And about ten or fifteen years later, I ran across it again, and I called Dennis. This is Dennis Hamill. Mm-hmm. And uh, asked him if the rights were still available, and uh, they were, and I optioned it, and I did a screenplay, uh, co-wrote a screenplay uh, and uh, with Paula Heller. And so this is close to 19, early 90s? Yeah, I guess it was, uh, yeah, it had to be in the early 90s, and... Uh, it was a very we took a we took it in a couple of very complicated ways uh the directions and i finally decided that we had kind of made a mess out of it and uh, <laughs> well that's so, honest yeah so i um thought that i had abandoned the project and um let the option run out and then about 3 years ago i guess it was i was uh, rooting around the cellar, that that old thing, and um, <clears throat> and I ran across Dennis's original script in the basement, and uh, in this great dusty pile, <laughs> and I looked at it again, and uh, and this is one of those things kind of hard to explain, but suddenly and in uh, a very short order, I had an idea about how to do the movie in in, in a new way, different way than I had tried before. And that basically was to kind of do it in a comic book, graphic novel fashion and to kind of make it an extension of the Tales from the Crypt 
uh, work that I had done. Uh, that struck me immediately because of using the frames from graphic novels that you transition from scene to scene, but it also has a very healthy dose of film noir and very pulpy and very tough guy. And, and, but in, you know, your, your films are often about masculinity <clears throat> and what it means to be a man versus an individual versus perhaps an underground society. This is a lot like that, but I love how you use the, the the primary colors, and it's always dark. There's not a daylight scene in the movie. Um, and, and well, there's a couple of daylight scenes, but it's but it's in a dark room with daylight outside. And they're, they're well, they're cloudy days. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, you're you're essentially right. Uh, so I I wanted it to be, but it was I wanted to do something. What did I want? I wanted to do something noirish. I wanted to do something uh, in the graphic novel, comic book vein. I wanted to do something with female leads uh, because everybody said, "Oh, he only works with guys," and, you know, <laughs> all that crap. And you get uh, you get, and you want to do things that are a little different for yourself, you know. Uh, you want to do things that are the same, but in a different vein somehow. And you want to, you want, you want your comfort zone, but, uh, but at the same time, you don't want to be endlessly repetitious. Well, this is a, a very much a change of pace in some ways. It's an independent film for one thing. Uh, but secondly, it is about gender in a different way. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I, I think there's probably, maybe you are the best person to tell what this movie is about. Well, uh, that's always the hardest question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. And and finally, I I confess, uh, even though I'm here at your kind request doing the interview, <clears throat> I think that the process is kind of impossible because I think you can't really totally or e even begin to express what because so many of your ideas are vague. My my idea, you know, when you do a film, and, and there's a lot of different complicated reasons and. Uh, but even the plot, I think, it has to be told in the trailer, I assume, that uh, this is a hitman who goes through um, someone else's revenge circumstances and comes out well, the other end yes, a very different place. That's, that's at, the, uh, at the most basic level. Right. It's also a story of a uh, highly trained medical doctor who's also an intellectual of a certain bent. Uh, a kind of ubermensch Nietzschean mm -hmm. personality uh, gone seriously off the track. Uh, played by Sigourney Weaver. Played by Sigourney Weaver. Very well played by Sigourney Fantastic. Weaver. Fantastic. Uh, uh, pitted against uh, with ideas about revenge, having reasons for revenge, against somebody that is really the dregs of life, that even on the uh, bottom feeder, in even in the criminal world, uh, a survivor of the most Darwinian kind of uh, uh, environment, and the, 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 as the narrative progresses, you see the changes in both characters. Uh, one of the things I kind of like about the story is that you end up with uh, a residual affection for both characters. I think they're, 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 they, the, the film, the story leaves them both in a melancholy, but, uh, melancholic condition. But, uh, you, you neither hate either, either character, I think, uh, even though they, both have done and continue to do rather wicked things. Well, that's an interesting hallmark of a lot of your films is the moral ambiguity of the leading characters. They're often, in this case, a hitman and a deranged uh, doctor, surgeon. Um, you know, it, it, but it's usually against a smaller segment of a society at large. It's uh, whether it's the long riders or it's, uh, you know, Southern comfort, any number of things. And this one, though, you have a lot of a lot of fun with it and a very bold performance by your lead character. And Michelle is, uh, Michelle she, Rodriguez. Yeah. Michelle Rodriguez. She, she gives a very brave performance as you said, very bold, very brave. Uh, it is in addition to other things, partially an essay about the human body. And she, uh, 
She gave it her all in this. Uh, she understood that that premise. She she's quite a character. She's um, really you know comes from a, a tough environment herself. That's that's all very true, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> she's not embarrassed about it. And she wants to meet you as an equal <laughs> in the tough guy world. And uh, <laughs> uh, our first lunch was. Now that I think about it, rather hilarious, but uh, uh, there was a lot of positioning each other as to, you know, who who had the credentials here. And uh, you were taking the girl fight, yeah, yeah. And um, well, she immediately she finally jumped up and said, uh, "I don't know who you're going to hire for this part, but if you, uh, but I'll tell you one thing: no guy, no girl is going to handle the guns any better than me. Think about that." walked away and uh number one she was correct about that she she handled the weaponry beautifully and it was an utterly convincing moment that i knew she could handle the part and that i knew that she had uh, uh credibility I don't think it's saying too much, especially in the selling of the film, there's certain plot elements that have to be given away, is that she plays two roles, basically, who are one. She plays a man and a woman in this film. Correct. So tell me a little bit about what those conversations were like with her in creating that character. Well, one approach, well, I think one of the questions, if I may give you one, <laughs> Please. Is, why didn't we cast a guy? Um, and I had a couple of feelings about that, that um, I thought if you cast a guy, the, mo- the the film would be too much about makeup and that kind of business because mm-hmm. the three quarters of the film, the, the Michelle's character, Frank Kitchen, uh, is in the body of a woman. So that was number one. I also thought that, you know, Frank Kitchen is a guy. You begin the movie with Frank Kitchen is a guy. Frank Kitchen, due to an operation, goes through genital alteration. But Frank Kitchen remains a guy. Mm-hmm. He is not, he does not become a woman. He is a guy inside his head. And he's wearing a woman's body. And suddenly he's wearing a woman's body. And he has to make certain adjustments to this. I mean, the, the movie is a double revenge story. The, the doctor is getting revenge on uh, Frank for having killed one of her relatives, her brother. Um, Frank wakes up in this state and wonders who did it, why did they do it, and boy, am I going to get even, you've, you've got the wrong guy, you know, and um, so that becomes, but then it becomes a journey of uh, discovery and and mental growth, I think, on both parts of both the, the main characters. You wanted to do comic books at the beginning of your, in your youth, right? Well, I, yes, I mean, I, I I don't know what you want to do when you're very young is pretty vague and and you know intense at the moment and then right. forgotten the next day but uh when I was a kid I was uh, an asthmatic very I, uh I had acute uh asthma and I didn't go to school a lot I was kind of home homeschooled by my uh my mother and my grandmother, essentially. And uh, uh, and I grew up in this kind of world of uh, comic books and, and books. I, I learned to read at a fairly early age. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I loved comic books. I loved listening to the radio, which, you know, with the various serials that were on and mm-hmm. things like that. And... Uh, um, and I was also exposed to literature, uh, more serious literature, but, uh, you know, you, the invisible man or treasure Island or right. something like you begin there. And, uh, it is, uh, 
It is one of the more uh, charming things about the great uh, Argentine writer Borges that he said that in his very old age he thought he was going to, after being one of the best read men in the world, he was going to spend his last days, he thought, uh, rereading the books that he first loved as a child. And I, I, I've often said, that's a great idea. I'd like to reread the books I first read as a child, and I'd also like to see the movies that I first uh, uh, responded to with an enormous kind of the passion. The Thing it being you know, yeah. one that... It was on last night. I was watching the Howard it. Hawks, uh, yeah, Christian Nyby, yeah, yeah, and um, uh, you know it. It still holds its great power and and, and great affection. Uh, actually, when we were working on Alien, the, you know the the first one when David and I would work on the script, uh, the thing was always the. That was your prototype. Uh, yeah, that was always well. What they what would they have you know what would they have done? What Interesting. Would... Well, let's talk a little bit about Alien because it is so deeply rooted in kind of what has gone on in genre films since. Um, this was in the wake of Star Wars, which had been the first space opera to be successful in many years, and suddenly. I actually did a little bit of publicity on Alien with a guy named Charlie Lippincott, who had a, sure, a marketing yeah. company. And the exciting thing about it was it was a science fiction film for grown-ups. It was the first R-rated science fiction film. So, and, and your script, yours and David Geiger's script, has become iconic in the sense of it is so, it makes Hemingway look long-winded. You know, it's, it's, it's very terse and beautiful to the point. I mean, it, you just burn through it. There's not a wasted word in that. Is that, is that how you like to work or? Uh, oh, very much. Yeah. The, um, when I was beginning as a screenwriter, I mean, one of the things that I, uh, with the arrogance of youth and, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I was, I guess you'd say disappointed in working on, you read a lot of scripts. And uh, this was back in the 60s. And they all seemed to be written by the same person. I mean, it was no matter... There was a kind of Hollywood style that... Uh, and it wasn't particularly literary either. And, uh, or even literate in most uh, yeah. cases. Yeah, and, and it was a kind of bland... Uh, there was a kind of, I guess, uh, efficiency about it. But uh, I started out as writing the scripts, and, and I tried to bring a different form to them. And Alien, by the time of Alien, we had it down pretty well. We, you know, we, I think the first script that I was totally committed to in uh, what became my style, I guess you'd say, was was uh, Hard Times, and then the next one, because it was the first one I was writing for myself. Right, this was the first film you directed. That's right, and the first one for myself. And I went further down the trail with uh, the driver and that and the approach to that script, which is as lean as a narrative can be, pretty lean. <laughs> and the uh, and the um, and it was right in that time that we were working on the alien script. You know, this is was the, it a tough pitch uh, with something that was so adult when we'd been coming off the crest of Star Wars being this giant family phenomenon? Well, suddenly, like Star Wars legitimatized, uh, I think science fiction had always been kind of back porch. The bastard uh, stepchild. Here. Yeah, I mean, uh, science fiction moved into the front room. Westerns were pushed into the back, onto the back porch. Action films had always been there. Um, and suddenly, so we had this, uh, we had optioned the alien script, uh, and, From Dan O'Bannon's screenplay? Yeah. Well, it was, uh, yes, Ron Shusett and Dan O'Bannon had fashioned a, a script, and uh, uh, they had, uh, Fox had seen the script, and uh, they had rejected it. Uh, um, it was sent to us as kind of an appeal. Could we, um, you know, revitalize interest in it? It had mm -hmm. been turned down quite a bit, which isn't always, by the way, a definitive answer to anything as we, all, as we all know but uh and fox was quite quite surprised when we exhibited interest in this <laughs> it was the script was pretty crude and it wasn't uh 
wasn't terribly well thought out in a lot of ways, but the mm-hmm. premise was quite good, and they had a couple of really good scenes in it. Uh, what we call the chest burster, right? Was, yes. Uh, so very, that was already there. That was there. Yeah, yeah that was there, and that uh, was the re- really that was the reason we bought the script. <laughs> That's was, great. That was that scene. And uh, it the terror from beyond space. Yeah, there yeah. Were, you know there were no women in it. It was an all male kind of thing, and uh, uh, so that changed. I made uh, uh, the Ripley character uh, a woman, and uh, that kind of changes everything. I mean, it really changed a lot. Yeah. The, uh, it was uh, her name is Ellen Ripley. Ellen was my mother's middle name, so. Uh. I, I used that, and um, David went off. I got the uh, task of making the original transitional script. <laughs> David went off with his girlfriend to Hong Kong. This is David Geiler. Geiler, yes, and uh, he always <clears throat> had a better life than any of us. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was during the Christmas season, and I uh, uh, I worked on the script for a few weeks, and and I had said David and I were talking. You know, we're going to have to. You know, in the future, there will be women on a spaceship. This is uh, not exactly shocking. But, um, and he suggested, he said, well, in the first battle, he said, why don't you try it with the captain being a woman? And uh, I started that way. But then I thought, no, you know, it's one of the great tropes is, uh, you know, the blind girl in the haunted house or something. Right, and, uh, right. So I said, let's, let's to myself, let's, uh, let's change this over and uh, go with it, uh, with a woman action lead. But this was groundbreaking in 1979. Seemed to be. And uh, uh, the audience responded, obviously. Ridley did a wonderful job. Fantastic. Uh, I, I think it's still his best movie. I, I have no... Uh, and he's made a lot of good ones. And, it's amazing and, because nothing looked like that movie before. We'd seen outer uh, space movies, but uh, nothing like that. Uh, you know, the um, uh, Ridley's involvement, we had sent the script to, I don't know how many directors, and they'd all turned it down. Really? Except, yeah, except Robert Aldrich. Interesting. And Robert Aldrich wanted to do the movie, and uh, Robert Aldrich, and initially it looked like that was going to happen. Uh, Aldrich... Liked the script, saw the potential, wanted to do it. Uh, he was the still the director, uh, president of the Directors Guild at the time. Mm-hmm. He felt he had been gone so much when he was making the movie he did over in Germany, Twilight's Last Gleaming, and that he had to make the movie in the U.S. Fox, for various financial reasons, very much wanted to make the movie in England mm-hmm. on the Edie plan. That was a big thing then. And they also had a special deal on the Bond stage, and they wanted to shoot the Bond stage. And they also had a, a, an awfully good run of luck using that stage because that was the uh, Star Wars stage. So right. there were a lot of them. And then uh, Bob had a movie that came out that didn't do too well. So suddenly that opportunity vanished. This is the first I've heard about Robert Aldrich <coughs> being the presumptive director of that which ties you together in another way. You were going to remake whatever happened to Baby Jane, which had well, the original I was, was. I wasn't going to so much remake it as adapted in a different direction. Ah. But those are subtle distinctions. I think for mm-hmm. uh, you know when I did uh, a story, uh, I did a very free adaptation of a story written <clears throat> by Mr. Kurosawa a number of years ago, and I I don't know how many times. I said, this is an adaptation from an original story by Mr. Kurosawa and a couple of other writers. Uh, it is not meant to be a remake. Right. The day the movie comes out, every review says Walter Hill's remake <laughs> of uh, Kurosawa. So, you know, it's... <clears throat> Believe me, I understand. I did the Shining miniseries. So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm familiar with the process. It's, it's their shorthand, you know, <clears throat> right. and... Um, However inaccurate or however correct you are in saying this is not a remake, it's it's an adaptation from a similar idea, so um, or the idea, and so that was. Um, but I I knew Bob, uh, I knew his son, Bill. 
Uh, one of my best friends over the years, uh, sadly, uh, departed, died too young, Lucas Heller, mm. uh, was very close friend of mine and uh, who wrote Baby Jane, wrote the original um, uh, from the novel. Uh, was it Henry Farrell, I think. Was right, yes. Yeah. And um, Lucas was extraordinary character and a very good screenwriter. He did The Dirty Dozen with Bob. And I and through Lucas, I used to hear lots of, you know, Bob Aldridge stories. Mm -hmm. By the way, I, I feel the characterization of uh, oh, Robert, Robert Aldridge in this thing that's their sh Dual, show, yeah. uh, feud or whatever. A feud, yes. Feud, yeah. is, Betty and Joan. Is, uh, uh, you know, I'm a First Amendment guy. You can write what you want. Right. But, uh, right. but it bears absolutely no relationship to the real person of Robert Aldridge, and I think it's rather shameful. That's too bad. The, the way they're presenting the character. Yeah. Shameful. Well, you came into directing from, in one sense, from your screenwriting, but even before that, you'd been an assistant director, which is a rare route to being. Uh, What's well, a, a rare route to being a writer? <laughs> it is definitely that. But you worked <laughs> with Woody Allen on Take the Money and Run. I did. And then Bullet seems to maybe have been an influential film for you um, as a filmmaker. Well, I think you know. I really think they all were. There, there was. Um, People occasionally ask me, what was there an advantage being working as an assistant uh, when I became a director? And I say, yeah, there, there was. I kind of knew my way around a set. I didn't have to wonder what grips did as opposed to electricians or something like that. Um, I don't think it's the most critical thing in the world about whether or not you're going to be able to make a director, but uh, make it as a director. But uh, yeah, it was it was helpful. But it was uh, my work as an assistant really was just to finance myself to mm -hmm. uh, survive while I was trying to write. But it's great for the nuts and bolts. The more you know about everybody else's oh, position, I, yeah. the better a director you. Yeah, sure. Be. The more you're around something, the better off you are. But, I mean, we were just talking about Robert Aldrich. <coughs> Aldrich was. Assistant director for uh, mm -hmm. he didn't become a writer, but he um, uh, Bob jumped from assistant to director. Did you write prose before you ever thought of writing screenplays? No. So you you knew you wanted to make movies from the beginning yeah. of your creative process. Yeah, right from the time I decided to get in, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I certainly thought that I was going to have a, a, a life, but I was very young. I mean, it was. Like joining, I just got out of school. I failed the army physical, and uh, <laughs> because of your asthma, because of the asthma, and uh, I failed the army physical. I drifted into uh, to a series of accidents into this uh, periphery of the Hollywood thing. I had always loved movies, and suddenly I decided that maybe I could make a living out of it, and uh, or make my living in it. And I knew. Uh, I think within a week of being around it, what I wanted to do, which is write and direct movies. One thing I absolutely believe is that uh, people that have had the chance to make, and make a living in the film world, no complaints. You know, this is a great privileged way to live a life, and uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, it has its ups and downs. That's part of the deal. Yep. Uh, there's the... Uh, I can never quite, I have to look this quote up, but uh, Dr. Johnson said, I read this once, that uh, uh, we enter the arena uncalled to seek our fortune and hazard disgrace. <laughs> and those are the, those are the rules. Yeah. You take your chances, you know, you, exactly. you play the cards that you're dealt. I'm running through the cliches <laughs> and uh, yeah. you play the cards you get dealt and um, uh, I on the whole I've had a very lucky career well I I find it to be not just a lucky career but you've been able to guide your career in ways that you're constantly evolving it's never the oh I can do this in my sleep sort of thing it's always something a fresh approach there's a new approach, you know, uh, the assignment is a new direction for you. 
Um, but one of the things that you will probably be noted for uh, for years to come is your reintroduction of the Western into the studio system as well as into television uh, with Deadwood and, uh, and the like. But tell me what drew you to the Western and wanting to make that such a big part of your life and your career. Well, I think they were, one, probably my favorite films when I was a kid. Uh, I, uh, I liked their, I think, I think you would say their simple narratives. Uh, I always say this about doing Westerns. People say, well, you know, you, you like to work with Westerns. Yeah, I do. Well, why? Well, you know, it's beautiful environment. You get to go out in the middle of nowhere and it's usually in a terrific landscape and you work with the horses and, uh, you know, the horses are really kind of special and uh, being around them and uh, the people that take care of horses, I think you find they're very special. The actors have a special feeling about being in Westerns and it also makes you kind of feel like you're a kid again, you mm -hmm. know, the costumes and the uh, it's an opportunity to uh, go out and do something uh, that you don't get every day, and it's just uh, it's just it's a very special moment. But that's all good. Uh, but I really think that, that the biggest thing about making a western for me. It, it's kind of like walking around in the Old Testament. You know, you, you get to tell these very elemental stories uh, about people that do good things and bad things. And, you know, there's the rules of the game are somehow foretold. And um, there's a dance to it. Uh, I think all the best stories are, you know, finally Old Testament stories, <laughs> really. They're all there. And uh, yeah, Borges again, you know. Borges said there were only two two basic stories, so um, the two being the crucifixion and the Odyssey. But um, uh, but so. there's there's a purity to the Western and to uh, an environment that was maybe more challenging in those days than than our soft uh, lives these days. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, look, nowadays all this is rather controversial. Uh, the uh, uh, there are a lot of people that feel that uh, Hollywood has told a very false story over the years. The uh, uh, the treatment of Native Americans. Uh, actually, I, I think that's a false charge. I think Native Americans have consistently been treated in at least the good westerns uh, with great respect and great understanding. And it uh, maybe <clears throat> maybe a bit patronized. I, I understand mm -hmm. that, but uh, not not everything is going to be. Uh, uh, you know, current sensibility about right. things, but um, I mean, in the '30s and '40s, they were just the bad guys. But, uh, but the, the 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 notion that uh, the winning of the West, as they used to say, and um, it's the Hollywood Western presented a very white culture. That's certainly um, politically incorrect at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of reasons now that, that the demands are either for enormous revisions in the approach to the Western or just dismissal altogether, mm. dis dismissed as a, a legitimate genre. Let's talk a little about Tales from the Crypt. I did one of them. I directed one of them. And uh, um, it very, was very good, a Nick. blast. Very good. <laughs> Thanks. But uh, I would love to know, knowing that you had a background in that when you were a kid, you wanted to make comic books. Here you are at a point in your career where you could be a part of bringing, was that a favorite comic book of yours in your youth? The uh, Yes, absolutely. The EC comics were much to the despair of my mother uh, and my <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> they, were, they were among my very favorites. And uh, uh, there's a fellow, I'm geez, I can't think of his name, uh, in St. Louis that republished Oh, Russ Cochran. Russ Cochran. <clears throat> yeah. Russ Cochran republished the EC comics in black and white in these big oversized Both. things. I've yeah. got them. Yeah. I've got them too. And <laughs> I stumbled across these, uh, I guess it was in the mid-1980s. And I got the complete, you know, reliving my youth and mm. all that. 
And uh, there were a couple of them, I, I just thought. And anthology movies were kind of, uh, you know, being made and talked about at the time. And I thought, you know, boy, let's get the rights to uh, some of this EC stuff or something. So uh, I had a company out at Universal at the time. We acquired the rights to Tales from the Crypt. And then the then it, uh, the option couldn't get the movie made. Uh, so you were originally going to do it as a feature film like the earlier British. Exactly. I see. Exactly. And I had the one I wanted to do, which was the man who, uh, the man who was death. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is the one I did in the pilot. And, um, Joel Silver came into the picture. He was, he and I had worked on several films together. And Joel, uh, he was fascinated by, I had the big Russ Cochran, uh, comics there and, uh, oversized comics in my office. And he would, and I said, you know, we're going to make this into a movie or that's the idea, et cetera, et cetera. And so when it wasn't happening, he came back and said, um, why don't I be your partner? (laughs) And, um, Joel's not a bashful fellow. uh, (laughs) No, I've worked with him as well. (laughs) And, uh, uh, he said, uh, if I could get it set up on television, do you think, uh, cable, do you think, would you, I said, sure, Christ, yeah, that sounds fine to me. But uh, we were, I was busy doing a lot of other things. And, and uh, so Joel went out and did, did all the work and got it set up at HBO. And, mm-hmm. and Dick Donner did a lot of the uh, work, too. And Bob Zemeckis was also Bob one was kind of kinda like me. He just yeah. came in. Right. You know, he, he showed. My deal, even though uh, David and I were the original entrepreneurial force, I guess you'd say, uh, my deal was when directing them, I, I would hit the budget, but I didn't want anybody telling me what the script was going to be about or um, what to do. And uh, nobody did. And I did three of them. Mm-hmm. And I was always very fond of all three. Um, uh, were you involved in the other episodes? Did you read the other scripts that no, were coming at you? I have no Basically one, just I never, got it together. And- I I saw the the others that, that were part. We had a triple pilot. Zemeckis did one, and, mm-hmm. and Dick Donner did one, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, both both were very good. And All three are so stylistically different, and yet each one is terrific. Well, thank you. And, <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I'm sure the others thank you too. And uh, <laughs> well, it led to what eight years of television, something like that. I don't know if it was quite seven, that long. Seven, it went I through. Think. It went through various phases. I was. Uh, I had completed each director. Uh, Dick, Bob, and myself had agreed to do three mm. uh, at our convenience. Uh, <laughs> I think I did three in the first three or four seasons. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I remember. And then Joel got me to do um, a, a pilot based on the Weird Science comics. But oh, yeah. They couldn't use the Weird Science title. And I did one with uh, Keith Carradine. Which is which was really a tale from the crypt, and in the if we shoot more wraparounds, it's going to be included in the. Uh, so I, to me, in my mind, I always did four of them. Right. Um, right. And um, uh, I mean that series never went, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, there were several other people. They, they wanted to do another triple pilot, and it didn't work out very well, and. Uh, Series really didn't have a, a core the way um, Tales from the Crypt did. That right. potentially that that didn't happen. So it had an attitude. You it, it, yeah. Well, what's the one that got away from you? What's the one project that you were really passionate about that looked like it was going to happen, and just evaporated? The one that I kind of think about maybe more than more than the others that uh, didn't happen. I always wanted to do a movie about Jim Bowie. Mm. And I thought that you could do a kind of, he was such a mixed character. He has the, um, unfortunate end. I don't, I don't want to say tragic because that's probably over glorified. I mean, he was, he's, his, his death has certainly been glorified, but, uh, we don't really, not too sure how he died at the Alamo other than 
he was not in peak health. And, right. Uh, uh, and he got a knife named after him. So. <laughs> well, he did. Uh, he and his brother and all that, and the some of the fights he was in, and the curious... Uh, I always thought you could do a real... Uh, uh, you know, he was an acquisitive, um, primal, capitalistic guy. Um, he was very physically very brave. Um, close, close mind. Very little is actually known about him. But I mean, you. I thought that the stuff was there to make a a hell of an interesting movie. And uh, he had never really been treated terribly seriously as a character in literature, at least that I know of. Uh, before, whereas Hickok or some of these others have have been time and again time yeah. and again been uh, <clears throat> treated in a serious manner. So the Bowie thing, I think, uh, I still think about it, and also I think that some of the staging. Uh, I like I like knife fights. I think uh, <laughs> uh, the one we did in Long Riders with oh, David, David David Carradine um, and Jimmy Remar. It's pretty powerful stuff. It was a good one. It was very, very, uh, we laid it out in the morning and tried to shoot, and it, was, it didn't go very well. <laughs> and uh, Sam Fuller was coming over that day to have lunch with oh, me. Oh, wow. And uh, he was in town, and he, he he lived up there off Woodrow Wilson, you know. And mm -hmm. he, he just a short hop down to Warner's, and... We were shooting on stage at Warner's, and uh, and I I said to everybody, I said, look, uh, one of the great directors and a great action director is coming to have lunch. This is embarrassing. We're, this goddamn scene stinks, and uh, I don't know what the hell is, but he'll probably stay and watch uh, when we get going again, and it's certainly, this is going to be the first thing up, so I hope to hell we're going to do a little better than we've done so I went off to lunch. Sam and I had a nice lunch, and he came back, and we suited up, and <laughs> I yelled action. And I'm telling you, Carradine and Remar almost killed each other. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was fabulous. And oh, the smile on your face as you tell it right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they did. I mean, they didn't hurt each other, but they, right. they, they, the, the intensity and the, uh, they remembered every move and, uh, it went on. I was, you know, sometimes you get frustrated, and uh, but when the, but when it goes well, you know this. You know, you know this. I'm not just talking to somebody from the outside. You know this. The, the incredible feeling that you have of being grateful to the performers, who not only give of themselves, but give more than you even thought was possibly there. Thrilling is deeply, deeply thrilling. Are you drawn to the horror genre? I mean, you've dabbled in it. You certainly, the horrific elements of Alien are there, Tales from the Crypt, and elements in the assignment and other other features, not just the violence, but the, the sense of dread and the like. Is that something that had an appeal to you all along, or are these just things that you've put your toe in the water? Or I think I'm really drawn to the sense of dread more than the jump-up uh, kind of... Uh thrills the jack-in-the-box doesn't really yeah that's uh, I mean there's nothing wrong with that uh, my oldest daughter Joanna uh, is a great fan of horror films and she makes me still she's uh, 28 years old uh, she still makes me take take her to them and uh, she loves to sit there with me and see them when they come out um, uh, so I mean I react like like an audience, but I I was a great reader of Poe when I was younger, and uh, and again it's that sense of dread that I think that feeling to me is um, a more interesting idea than just the the in right. your face the kind boo, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. something but, you but, take home with you after. But at after the same time, it's great to have a good scare. And, <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm, I think I'm more of a fan than somebody consciously working them out to to do I I kind of got in trouble I remember I was doing an interview in England and um, I said it as kind of a half-assed joke but somebody asked me the difference between action movies and horror movies and uh, and I said 
I said, well, in action movies, you beat the shit out of guys. And in horror movies, they beat the shit out of women. <laughs> and I said something about I'm a little more comfortable beating the shit out of guys. Good for so, you. So <laughs> um, anyway, there were a lot of complaints about this definition. I, I possibly not... Um, not the most politically correct joke that I've ever told, but um, <laughs> but we're understanding here. Well, I hope so. I, yes. yes, I hope so. Your audience, <laughs> yeah. I know, is very sophisticated. So. And speaking of our audience, Jake asks, "What is your takeaway from the status the Warriors now holds as a cult classic?" Which is interesting because it was a successful movie, but it's a movie that still lives and still breathes. And the whole idea of a cult classic—how how do you feel about that? Well, the fact that people are still interested in something you did 35, close to 40 years, 40 years ago, really. Um, the fact that that's still of interest makes, as I always say, it makes an old man happy. Uh, <laughs> um, it's flattering. Um, I And it's it's because there was a, a big stink about the movie when it came out. It It was both a success... It was controversial, and it was... There were violence in, there there, was violence there in was, theaters where it was there, shown. There was, there was violence in theaters where it was shown, and uh, the film, in my opinion, falsely was associated with some t- terrible acts of, of um, violence, the, um, most of which had nothing to do with the movie. But um, so that the fact that it's kind of lived on in another context, the idea that this movie is super violent, I mean, it looks, you see it now, it looks more like a musical, but uh, <laughs> um, the, um, I think that the thing I, I also like, everybody thought we were kind of crazy when we were making it, and and the studio hated it, hated the movie, barely, uh, you know, there was a point where we, we weren't even sure they were going to release it. They so violently hated it. So mm. there's the sweet feeling of uh, vindication. Vindication, <laughs> yeah. They, uh, the 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 old Paramount guys were just boy. It was yeah, you just you know you um, you loaded your gun and went to work. I mean that was uh, that was the way it was there. And, well, you can blow them the raspberry now. Uh, well, when I remember when I did forty eight hours there. Uh, there was an executive went to went to Daly's, and after Daly's, one day he came out and said, "Walter Hill will never work this lot again." And uh, oh, really? And you know, five years later, I did another movie there, and he was gone. But uh, <laughs> that but, is sweet revenge. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, how do I feel about the Warriors? I uh, I think it taught me a few things. The uh, you know take chances, uh, nothing safe, um, and uh, I think a lot of the reason that it's uh, moved on, you know, and, and still there was uh, there's a kind of sense memory. It was there had been a lot of gang movies before. It wasn't unique in that sense, but but I think what was unique was the movie totally and this is no longer unique it's it's they're all like that now but the movie accepted uh the characters and the gangs as part of the real world and not so much as a social problem mm. uh I, by real world I, the movie didn't exist in the real world but <clears throat> right it's very stylized yeah in, it's in a, a very stylized way. film but but the the movie didn't wasn't the middle class looking down at uh the underclass and mm-hmm. saying, Jesus, the, these guys, they're not going to be going to college and they're not going to be doctors and lawyers and isn't that sad and shouldn't society figure out what to do? It, it had nothing to do with any of those. Um, it was, um, as my friend Larry Gross always says, it was a mythopoetic um, uh, tale of uh, survival and uh, that's a good way of putting it mythopoetic tale of survival I well like I, I'm too uh, humble to use those kind of phrases but, uh, <laughs> but let Larry Gross I'll let Larry it. Gross yes he's Larry's much more intellectual than I am and, somehow uh, I doubt that and uh, and he's certainly a lot smarter than I am so I doubt that as well but we got one more question uh, Johnny asks about the Alien franchise how involved are you 
in the Alien movies since the first one? Not at all. Okay. Uh, the, well, actually, that's not true. Uh, I was very involved in the first three. Mm. And after that, uh, I know you'll find this incredibly surprising, but uh, my partner and I, Mr. Geiler, we did not get along with the studio very well. And we did not, Shocking. yes, and we didn't get along with where they felt it should all be going. So there was a legal divorce. Uh, we maintain ownership in part, partial ownership, mm -hmm. uh, a piece of the action, as they say, in the franchise. In return for that, they've insisted that our names still be on. Uh, but everything since then, sink, swim, yay, nay, good, bad, or indifferent, I didn't have anything to do with, hmm. nor did David. It, uh, I haven't even read any of the scripts that, uh, <laughs> since the third, third alien. So, uh, I thought, I thought it was a mistake to do the alien predator stuff, uh, um, and whatever, you know, um, I've seen some of them. I haven't seen all of them, but, <laughs> uh, uh, I saw the, the, was it Prometheus? Right, Prometheus. I saw that, yes. And now we've I had a very handsome credit. David and I both had very handsome credits on it. Excellent. But, but, uh, well, that seems to work out to everyone's satisfaction. Then. I think so. I mean, okay. I, I haven't received any phone calls or bulletins from the studio saying, we terribly miss you. <laughs> couldn't you help us? So. You've only received the checks in the mail. Yeah. Well, that's true. And there is a retrospective of Walter's work at the Cinematheque at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, April 6th through the 9th, and it will also include the assignment, his new film. So make sure you make it. Okay, you can reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG, one word, of course. And then don't forget, you can subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and leave feedback so we can find ways to make the show even better. Thanks. Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking part in this conversation. It's really been a great one to have, and, and we really appreciate you being here on Postmortem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 